0: Today's reading is from Psalm 127, so if you would turn with me, it's on page 518 in the Red Bible in front of you, or it should also be on the screen behind me shortly. Okay, that's Psalm 127, page 518. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, before I invite Pastor Steve to come up, uh, let's take a look at the screen behind us to watch a short clip, which you may be familiar
1: with. Hmm. Jan, four seconds. What are you doing? Oh, you had said that you don't do anything personal during work time, so I'm just making sure. Oh, wait a minute. So you're going to time me every time I yawn? That's absurd. Really?
2: Oh, hey, look. Monkey knows how to use a stopwatch, everybody. He's ta-
1: Personal conversation. 17 seconds. There is no way that that was- One second. And? You.
2: By any chance did you see Battlestar Galactica last night?
1: No, I did not. Is that any good? Actually not. It is really so-so. OK. I mean, I like all the crazy monsters and stuff. You know, like Klingons and Wookiees and all that. But sorry, was there something you wanted to add, Dwayne? Is that anything like the original Battlestar Galactica? You know it's weird? practically a shot-for-shot remake. Really? Huh, that's cool. The story's kinda bland. It's about this guy named Dumbledore Calrissian who needs to return the ring back to Mordor. Really? That doesn't sound right. All right. (laughs) Uh, Always exciting to start the morning off with a little bit of The Office. (coughs) Did you know The Office is now considered like this cool old show. Um, <coughs> that kind of blew my mind when I found that out. I was like, oh, so many things are making me feel old these days. All right, well, we will come back to that. That will all make sense here in just a few minutes, but let's begin uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll do a little bit of review on our series in the Psalms, and then we'll begin, uh, we'll really begin our conversation, and this will all make sense here in just a moment. So pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather again, uh, to be in this particular place to worship and to spend time in your word, to hear from you, to be together. I pray now that uh, we would be able to be quiet, that we'd be able to uh, still whatever conversations are going on in our mind, whatever we've brought in here with us this morning, God, so that we can hear from you. God, we ask that you would use this time to form us and shape us into the ways of Jesus. And that we would continue to move in this direction of our whole lives being a response to the good news, the the gospel that Jesus has given his life for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we've been in a a long run in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and so we turn our attention uh, again today to the Psalms, and and to get us back into this, just a little bit of review to refresh our memories. We've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, These, uh, these Psalms that run from Psalm 120 to 134. It's the smaller section in the larger book of Psalms, and we've seen these are Songs that Hebrew pilgrims would have sung as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year, for Pentecost and Passover and tabernacles. And we've been making the case that these psalms are a good guide for us in our discipleship in the way of Jesus, which raises the question, how? How are these ancient songs sung by Hebrew pilgrims well before the time of Jesus and the Old Testament sacrificial worldview. How are they helpful to us? We've said that they're they're helpful to us for a variety of reasons, but I want to give three here again to, to refresh us and remind us of where we've been. These songs are reminders that discipleship is intentional, it is communal, and it is this lifelong, whole life process. And so let me talk a little bit about each of those things, okay? These journeys to Jerusalem were regular and rhythmic. Again, they happened three times a year. If you were a good Hebrew, you would do this three times. Pack up your stuff and make the journey to Jerusalem. And so this provided a rhythm, a structure to their lives and to their worship. Intentionality is so important to our formation. So many things coming at us, right? So many voices, so many ideas that we have to contend with. It's important that we make these regular decisions, daily decisions about what will form us. Practices, disciplines are essential to discipleship in the way of Jesus. And that's what these journeys represented for the Hebrews. That's what these songs represent for us. We've seen these journeys were never embarked upon alone. This was not something that you would do by yourself. You made the journey together. You walked, you ascended up that hill into Jerusalem together, singing these songs together to celebrate and worship together. It was all done together. Discipleship is never a solo affair. Formation always happens in community. And then finally, these songs, again, speak to our whole lives. And there's only 15 of them, but they cover so many different topics. They speak to our fears and anxieties, our joys and triumphs. They talk about worship, confidence, trust, where we find our help, relationships. And today, the, the two topics that hit all of us, right, work and family, And again, this reinforces this idea that discipleship is not an extra bonus activity that, you know, only super spiritual people do. This is a process that encompasses our whole life. In fact, it is a way of life. So let's turn our attention now to Psalm 127 and to the topics, uh, again, of work and family. these, These really big things that impact us all. Whether we are in a traditional job or not, whether we have a strong connection to our family or not, work and family exert a tremendous amount of influence over over us, over our thinking, over our well-being. At the time that this psalm was written, work and family were primarily about survival. You had to work so you could eat. You needed a family for, for protection. They are fundamental to staying alive. Now, today, we may not think about work or family through the lens of survival, but they, again, continue to be a huge in- influence on our lives, and they can very quickly become the center of our lives. If we were to create a top five list of popular idols, work and family would easily make that list, right? Think about family for a moment, whether you are single or single, and you want a family, whether you're feeling anxiety about the lack of family, whether you're married and have kids and are inundated with all the responsibility that entails. Maybe you, you, you're just trying to live up to some sort of family reputation, honor your family, your family name. Whatever it, whatever it might be, there is this tremendous, uh, again, influence that family has on us, impacts us in a very deep way. And then, of course, there's work. And again, we come in this morning with, with all different perspectives on work. We may hate our job. You may think that what you do is not all that important or valuable. Maybe you're spending 80 hours a week in the office trying to please your boss or you know, hit that next goal that you've, you've set. Maybe you're out of work and you're fretting about bills that are coming due. But again, whatever perspective you may have on it, work controls your life and your thoughts, and your emotional well-being. Two things, work and family, that quickly become the center of our lives. And we've just said discipleship is this whole life response to Jesus. It's about all aspects of our lives being formed by the ways of Jesus. And so it should be no surprise to us that work and family show up in these songs. If we cannot be a disciple in the context of work and family, then we're going to have a hard time being a disciple of Jesus. So a couple of observations from this text about these massive topics. To begin with, note, at the, at, before you even get into the text, right, there's this little uh, superscript that says this is a psalm of Solomon. Solomon is, is known primarily for his wisdom, And he wrote the books of uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, Proverbs. These these books that are now included in our scriptures, these collections of wisdom. Solomon was the third king of Israel. He was the son of King David. And he's not as, as well known for writing psalms, but he did write a few. And again, here we have one this morning. Solomon, if you know his story, knew a lot about work and family. He was incredibly successful in his career as a king. In addition to writing these uh, massive works of philosophy, he built the temple. He expanded the borders of the kingdom. The temple was the focus of Israel's worship. (laughs) It was probably the most important architectural endeavor that the country had ever uh, undertaken. He also grew up in David's massively dysfunctional family. And in addition to that, he himself had several hundred wives and many children. If you think your family has issues, go read about Solomon and be encouraged. (laughs) So he knew a lot about these things, knew a lot about work and family. Let's look at what another uh, person, another royal person um, thinks about Solomon and what he had accomplished. This comes from 1 Kings. And a visit that Solomon has with the Queen of Sheba. Sheba is uh, an ancient kingdom. It's probably located uh, in modern day Yemen. And the Queen comes to, to visit Solomon. Look what happens. The Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, and she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, which is Hebrew for crew, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the houses he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. That's a pretty good LinkedIn endorsement, right? (laughs) Now, given all that, let's look again at what Solomon says in our text about work. So the first two verses of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Two key words in these verses, unless in vain. Solomon, as we said, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're familiar with that book, if you've tried to read it at some point, <laughs> you know it's a very long meditation on this word Vanity. Of course, to be vain is to place too much uh, importance in one's own accomplishments. But there's also uh, the reality that vanity alludes to the idea of futility. And in thinking about that in relationship to work, the, the ways in which work can be empty and pointless and meaningless. Look at Solomon's own words, Ecclesiastes 2. I hated all my toil. In which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also Is vanity. This verse you can put on a three by five card and just leave it on your desk for a bit of encouragement, right? (laughs) Now remember, these words come from the guy whose accomplishments, whose great success took the breath away from the queen of Sheba. It's all vanity, right? A vexation. Which is why this word, unless, is so important. Solomon, who built God's house, who watched over the city of Jerusalem, who accomplished so many things in his work life, says it is all in vain. It's all in vain. Unless. Unless. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord watches over the city. What if that word, what if instead of the verse from Ecclesiastes, what if you wrote that word unless on that three-by-five card? And that kind of became your mantra at work, your, your mantra even in parenting. Unless the Lord is with me, unless the Lord is doing this. And that informed the way you go to that meeting on Monday morning or discipline your kid on Tuesday afternoon. Now, let's pause here for just a minute, and I want to talk about a couple of poor theologies that we may have picked up at some point that are born out of this tension that we have with the vanity, the meaninglessness of work. We will need to leave these theologies behind if we are to be discipled by Jesus in this area of our lives. So first, there's a theology of work represented by the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. This is in the, the prehistory section of Genesis where people are still basically in one geographical place speaking one language and they undertake this endeavor to build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven. And they do this, they say, to make a name for themselves. Their work, and this is true of us a lot of times, right? Our work becomes about establishing and affirming our identity. We find our identity in what we do. The tower was about doing something memorable, even eternal. It was rooted in a mistrust of God's promise to take care of them. It was the physical epitome of the anxious toil described in our song. Now, here we go. This brings us finally back to the office. Okay. This approach to work represented by Babel that we must define ourselves by what we do and look to our work to provide meaning for our existence is best personified by the character Dwight. Okay? (laughs) Dwight's the one who is uh, getting very frustrated with the Battlestar Galactica conversation. Now, if you've seen the show, if you're familiar with The Office, you know that Dwight is kind of a, a, a buffoon, right? He's sort of a goofball, easily made fun of. But he is... The definition, or at least the caricature, of anxious toil. He is always concerned about his position in the office. He's trying to move his way up the flow chart, and he is trying to please his boss, the world's best boss, <laughs> Michael Scott. Now, here in the Bay Area, we we, you know, we probably like to think of ourselves as more sophisticated than Dwight. But many of us have a Dwight theology of work. We work hard, which is to say we work a lot, to please the boss, to move up the ladder, to pad the resume, so that we feel good about ourselves, so that we find our identity, our grounding in what we do. And it is is this mindset primarily that our text today Uh, confronts head-on all that hard work all those extra hours all that resume building it is all in vain unless the Lord builds it now some respond to this by swinging in the the other direction in a direction that says essentially God's got this so I'm gonna take life easy we see this theology at work in the church at Thessalonica. This is a church that was started by a guy named Paul. And later, Paul wrote a couple of letters back to this church uh, based on some issues that he saw, that he heard about uh, taking place there. And so we get a, a couple of glimpses of this in each of those letters. First, Thessalonians chapter 2 sort of lays out Paul's example that he gave to this church. He says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk and this phrase is so important in a manner worthy Charges you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul is saying, Hey, remember my example. We worked really hard. And yeah, I want you to remember the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, but he also wants them to remember his example. This is important because look at what happens later in this story. Second Thessalonians, Paul has to say this to this church. Now we command, notice how it went from remember to command. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. He's saying, remember my example. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living. You can hear, you can feel Paul's frustration. They are not following his example, his frustration with this mentality that, oh, God's got it, everything's under control, I don't need to do much. Back to the office. This is Jim, right? Again, if you know the show, you know that particularly in the first couple of seasons, Jim has no sense of of purpose or higher calling. And, And part of the comedy of the show is that Jim is very clued in to the meaninglessness and the vanity of the work that they are doing. The most interesting part of his job is flirting with Pam and pranking Dwight. Now, some of us, this needs to be said, some of us are out of work for very real and very challenging reasons. And that is not what uh, Paul is speaking against here in this particular text. Some of us, we're not working out of laziness, but I think the bigger reality here in the Bay Area is, is this. And I believe this is the point that Paul is addressing. Many of us are employed... But we are idle. We're not working in a manner worthy, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. So take a moment and just think about that. Babel and Thessalonica. Okay, Dwight and Jim. And, and, and kind of that spectrum, which one do you tend to fall into? Are you more of a Dwight or are you more of a Jim? Now, how do we recapture a better biblical theology of work? We have to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 tells us of God's work of creation, and it's capped by this statement at the beginning of chapter 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Twice this text says God worked. Now think about that for a minute. God works. We must begin with this. Earlier in the creation account, a couple of verses before this, we read this. God blessed them, them here, human beings, his uh, creatures that are called to bear his image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's family. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Work. Right here in the creation story. We are invited <coughs> into God's work. This mandate, as it's often referred to, is to work with God to care for and steward his creation. We were always intended to be productive, to make things, to create stuff, to name and organize and cultivate this good world that God has made. We were made to work. And there's something about work that, ref- that helps us reflect God's image, that taps us into his character. Now, as we know, the whole thing gets off track when sin enters the picture, and Genesis chapter 3 tells us of the fallout of our rebellion against God and how work becomes far more difficult. The ground is now cursed, thorns and thistles fight against our efforts, and there is this struggle, this vanity in our work. But work itself is not cursed. Work is still good and necessary and important, and important. God still works. John chapter 5, Jesus' own words, My Father is working until now, and I am working. God's work now is about restoring, redeeming His creation. Tim Keller says it this way, Whether we are splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting the rubbish or painting a picture, when our work further develops, maintains, or repairs the fabric of the world, we connect our work to God's work. What if that was our vision for our Monday mornings? Now this brings us to the second half of this psalm and this bit about kids. What does this have to do with this? <laughs> Verses 3-5, through five, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This, uh, the question that comes up here and that many scholars wrestle with and debate is what exactly is this psalm about? Is this a psalm about work? Is this a psalm about family? Are these things somehow connected? This seems kind of like two random things dropped into one song. First thing I want to say about that is, you know, a lot of times we'll read the second half of this psalm at a baby dedication, or or we'll try to read it, you know, literally. And I think there's a a time and a place for that. But I think it really needs to be read in the context of the first two verses. So a couple quick observations. First, Solomon understands that children and family are a sort of grace, and that we must receive them. We don't get to choose which family we're born into, and even with all of our technological advancements, there's still this mystery, this miracle about birth, which is to say family is a reminder of that unless from the first half of the psalm. As much as we may want to think of ourselves as masters of our destiny, as in control, the reality is everything we do is in God's hands. This is also a reminder of the good news of Jesus. A reminder that we don't earn any of this. We don't earn our lives. We don't earn our salvation. Right relationship with God is a gift. It's all grace. Now, second observation. Solomon says children, family is a blessing. And that's that same word used in Genesis chapter 1. He blessed them. Family is a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Some of us may have a legitimate question about that. (laughs) At the end of the psalm, Solomon says a family is a kind of protection, will not be put to shame by our enemies at the gate. This is another reminder, yet another reminder that we were created for relationships, for community. We were not meant to do life alone. Now, not all of us are married, not all of us are able to have children, and so again, I think it's very important that we interpret the second part of this psalm in light of the first. And so I think what Solomon is doing here is using family as a metaphor for work, for what we dedicate our lives to. This metaphor is a reminder that all God-honoring work is focused on investing in people. This is modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus never married, never had children. Was he then not blessed? Of course he was blessed. Jesus speaks directly to this. We've seen this in our study in Mark. Mark chapter 3 his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The blessing that Solomon speaks of finds its fulfillment here in the community of Jesus followers, in the church, in relationships that are focused on doing God's will, on bringing God's kingdom into reality in our world. So whatever we do, whatever we give our lives to, whether we're the CEO or the janitor, we do good God-honoring work when we invest our energy and our efforts into people and into outcomes that benefit and bless people. Our work is not in vain when it produces a heritage of relationships. One more quote from Tim Keller. He says it this way, We are not to choose jobs and conduct our work to fulfill ourselves and accrue power, for being called by God to do something is empowering enough. We are to see work as a way of service to God and our neighbor, and so we should both choose and conduct our work in accordance with that purpose. Over this past year, we've uh, had the privilege of having three interns serve with us. And a couple weeks ago, you guys got to hear from, uh, from Lauren. And today we're going get, to get a chance to hear from Nathan. And I, as I've gotten to walk with Nathan during this journey of the internship this past year, I felt like his story really speaks to this idea of what he gave up to be invested in this community and in the relationships here um, as opposed to pursuing other things you know that he could have been doing, so welcome Nathan as he comes and shares a little bit with you guys. Thank you.
2: Hello, how's it, how's it going, everyone? You may uh, recognize me from such places as here at region. <laughs> Because I've been an intern for uh, the past year, whether you know it or not. My name is Nathan Chamberlain. It's nice to meet you if we haven't met yet. And yeah, I I started being an intern here last September. Um, I'm happy to be sharing my testimony about my internship with you today. Um, So in my spare time, I enjoy reading comics, watching basketball, making music, and drinking coffee, which is where the story starts. It starts with coffee, About a year ago, I was an assistant manager for a local coffee company, Ritual Coffee in San Francisco. And while I had gone through a a recent promotion at my job, I knew that an inevitable change was around the corner. Being a graduate in music studies, I was in the process of starting a band and on a constant lookout of how I could further my music career. I considered doing an internship, maybe one at a recording studio or one with a performing musician or... Uh, some sort of band management with a group, I certainly did not have the Regen internship in mind. However, about this exact time last year, Steve, who was just speaking, was teaching a sermon that acknowledged how people sometimes get a little too comfy with the season in life, to the point where there is hardly any spiritual growth happening. When I heard this, I saw this within myself, and I noticed that I was becoming complacent and smelling like coffee, mediocre sleeping patterns, and daydreaming about what my music could become. It was during this moment I started to think and pray about what it would mean to be an intern here at Region. I thought about how it would look like to invest in a community that I had been a part of for the past eight years. So I decided to do the internship. Steve and Albert were happy, and funny enough, when I told Albert that I was going to do the internship, he had been, like, for about eight years, he kind of had this annual, like, question for me of, like, so, are you going to join the internship? And so, when I finally told him, like, he came back from his sabbatical, and I was like, hey, Albert, I'm doing the internship, and he was like, yeah, I knew that you would eventually do it. God answers prayers. (laughs) So within the past year, I have seen the value that lies within investing into this community that has served me so much, as well as picking up a few unexpected lessons. When the internship started, Steve had us interns, Lauren Burtis and I, assess our style of leadership. This was after we read what ended up being my favorite intern book, The Making of a Leader. I mean that sarcastically. The funny thing about this moment back in September was I, was I specifically remember stating in a rather pouty sort of way, I'm not a leader, I don't lead anybody, I don't wanna lead. And the other three kind of chuckled and shook their heads at me, which happened a lot throughout the whole intern year, <laughs> and told me that simply was not true. I thought I was right, my experience proved me wrong. One of my biggest projects as an intern, Uh, this past year, was leading the artist small group. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and many others have no idea what I'm referring to, which is the point of the story. So to start from the beginning, I had this vision to start a new home group that would reach out to all the artists here at Regen. Within my vision of this group, I had pictured a Yeah, I had pictured a group of of about 15 to 20 people that would rally enthusiastically around the group as if it were like a bi-weekly TED Talk gathering. And it would conclude in this art show circuit 2009 region that would be hosted here with multitudes of people coming out, like seeing all this awesome God-inspired work, right? And that did not happen at all. Instead, the group had about four to five people each meeting. We went through a book that was... Pretty challenging at times to understand what the material was about because it was written very abstractly and the art show did not even come close to happening. Now don't get me wrong, I don't mean to make this sound like it was a total failure, but yet rather than having this experience of instant gratification via my fulfillment of the vision that I had for the group, I learned over time that God was truly doing something beautiful with this group. On one hand, I was frustrated with the group size. I had simply measured success with size. Yet as the group progressed, I learned that the few who would come were being fed through our discussions. A couple of people had even approached me privately to say that they received valuable insight from the group about their creative process, which is what the group was about, and about their relationship with God that they wouldn't have received if it weren't for the group. Just this example alone, I learned that God values each and every person that came to the group to the point where the group didn't need to have this mass quantity to be successful, but it needed the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I also learned quite a bit about myself as a leader. I saw, and others affirmed to me as well, that I was the leader of this group, that I was responsible. I know it sounds simple, but really, that I was responsible for maintaining a group dynamic, its content, and its direction. I learned that one part of being a leader is that when things aren't working out according to the vision or ideal, that having a tight grip to the core values of the group and keeping a hold like a hold of faith are vital in importance. I learned that being a leader means being at peace, being at shalom with God. Through the artist group, or though the artist group didn't turn out to be anything like what I hoped it would be, perhaps I was left with a little bit more of a rich and spiritual experience than what would have been had it gone ideally. To the the credit of the book that we were reading in the group, which was titled Walking on Water, much of being a leader is like that moment when Peter walked on water. In that moment, we're trusting Jesus with this act of doing this seemingly impossible thing. And if we lose a hold of that trust that we have in Jesus, we just simply fall into the water. Yet, if we have tenacity, we walk on water. We can do this seemingly impossible thing. I've learned that this lesson has been applicable to other areas of my life, especially within the creation of artwork or foreseeing what the next steps in life are. Oftentimes, as we are looking to lead others or lead our own lives, we often find the need to look towards the leadership of Jesus. This was an extremely valuable life experience that I've gained within this past year. Within the, when the internship started, I don't think I thought in terms of being a leader, nor was it a concept I cared to acknowledge. Therefore, I didn't seek God in any form of leadership. Now, as I'm about to embark on the next chapter in life, I look towards God during this beautiful, odd, and awesome experience of walking on water lastly we got us entrants we got to read through the whole bible in this past internship year that's part of our internship and from that i found my favorite bible verse i didn't know about before and so i will conclude with this it is second kings chapter 23 verse 11 and it reads and context does not matter with this I think I think it speaks for itself so I don't need to explain but as he re- so second Kings 23 11 as he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the chamberlain which was in the precinct he burnt the chariots of the sun with fire thank
1: you everybody I was there the moment he made that discovery. He was was quite happy about it. Uh, Let let me pray for Nathan, and then uh, we'll we'll move into a time of communion. Father God, thank you for um, bringing Nathan to this community uh, many years ago, for his faithfulness uh, to this place, and for the courage to finally take the step into uh, being an intern, Um, and for the journey that he's been on this past year. I know there's been many things that... um, He's been thinking through and wrestling through, and you have been meeting him in that and uh, teaching him a lot about who he is and uh, who you've created him to be in this world. Uh, May you continue to uh, lead him and guide him as he seeks uh, the next thing, the next opportunity. Um, And may we as his community continue to cheer him on as he pursues you uh, in all that he does. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thanks, Nathan. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) We're going to uh, close our time together um, singing and in, and in communion uh, as we normally do, and if you would like prayer, um, we would love to pray with you. I'll be up here in the front, and Meijin's also up here uh, if you would like some prayer. A couple of things uh, to lead us into this time. The, the first is this, to do a, a, just a little bit of reflection on what we've been talking about. What what is work and family become for you? Have they become idols? Have they become the center of your life? Do you need to let that go a little bit? At work, are you more of a Dwight or a Jim? Do you need to reimagine, revision your, your work, your callings in life uh, to see them as building relationships, blessing people, building God's kingdom one person at a time? So take some time uh, to reflect on that, and then when you're ready, you can come and take communion. Communion is this incredible reminder of that unless, that that key word from our text today that unless God did this, unless Jesus did this for us, laid his life down, his body broken and his blood poured out for us, we would not be able to have right relationship with God. So as we sing, reflect on all of that. When you're ready, come and take communion. And again, if you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you this morning.